0: Hi there, we really hope you enjoy this teaching from the Message Trust. To find out more about all the exciting things we're doing, check out our website, message.org.uk. This talk was recorded approximately 2015. Unfortunately, due to some technical issues, the audio quality is not as good as usual. However, the teaching was so good, we didn't want you to miss it. Let's just pray for us, shall we? Holy God, we are blessed by what you brought us yesterday, and we thank you for Ash. We thank you for the way that he led us in reflection, led us to hear your voice. Led us, Lord, to reflect on your goodness and your faithfulness. And God, we pray this morning that again we would hear from you. Lord, as Ash shares. Father, make your voice known. Open our ears today. Bless him. Amen. Thanks, Sam. Uh... I've just so enjoyed being with you. I love the Geordie accents. They're amazing, aren't they? No? It was not a Geordie accent. I haven't quite got the hang of them. I do know the Birmingham accent, and my son is picking it up. And, uh... sides. It's a side accent. <laughs> Sit down now. <laughs> I, I do love it. My dad actually is from Manchester, and was always growing up as a, um, a in Australia, my my uh, as a, a British migrant kind of kid. It was always a bit difficult, you know, with the sports and all that kind of stuff. Because whenever Australia lost, all my friends at school would kind of you know hang out on me, you know, uh, in cricket or football or anything. Um, and of course, when Australia won, all my family would hang out on me as well. So I'd kind of uh, never, never, never win. And I mean, I, I guess. Uh yeah, dads and sons always have interesting kind of relationships, don't they? I don't know if you saw recently that across the country they had um children, young boys giving presentations about what their dads did for work. Did you see this? It's in the The Guardian I read it. So it may not be true. But uh <laughs> But yeah, you know, one boy was saying, My dad's an engineer Oh, that's amazing. What does engineer do? and trying to explain what his dad does, you know. My dad's a manager of a, of a factory. Wow, what, you know, tries to explain what that is. And then one boy says, actually, my, my dad breaks into manor houses, steals the silver, and sells it on eBay. Whoa. The teacher pulls him aside after class. Does your dad really do that? No, sir. My dad's an English cricketer, but the family's too ashamed. <laughs> Uh, for the last 25 years I've been involved in all kinds of urban mission, beginning in Australia and then for the last 12 years uh, in the biggest slum in Bangkok, Kong toy Slum, a slum of 100,000 people in a square kilometre and we lived there with our family uh, for, for those, that time. About five months ago we moved into Winston Green in uh, Birmingham and of course we're part of the Midlands uh, Eden team and um, I'm starting an initiative called the Newbigan Centre which is aiming to mobilize, form, and equip uh, Christian leaders for our new urban world. Um, I just thought, just as a way of of kind of grounding our time, just a little bit of image from uh, where we're living now in Winston Green. Many of you may have known of the, the series Benefit Street, which is a horrible documentary series, but I do want to kind of show a clip from that just to kind of ground us into what is happening in the broader scene here and then share a little bit from God's Word and some of the challenges I feel around the calls to conversion, the calls to discipleship. Okay? Unemployed. 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 You see this street here? James Turner Street was one of the best streets. Unemployed. Unemployed. No? One of the worst. James Turner Street in Birmingham is not your average street. There are 99 houses. I did push here, my 13 nationalities. Yeah, welcome. And most of the residents. Penny for the poor. Are claiming benefits. Probably 5% of people on this road that are working. The times are getting tougher. The housing benefit is going to get caught. What kind of nonsense is that? They're having to learn to get by on less. How are we supposed to live on £50 a week and rely on each other more. If the cats won't come and pick you up, we'll do it ourselves. Fun guy! It's mad. It's just like one great big family. Do any point? Don't talk to me. Do any point? Do not talk to me. I don't think you could ever make anything anymore. more this fuck show. Holy <laughs> Mary, Mother of God, send me down a couple of baths. <laughs> Over the course of a year... I'm ..through good times... <laughs> ..and bad... Move <laughs> up! Life on James Turner Street... I've never lived without my kids, ever. ...would be challenged like never before. It's not all about money. You could have all the money in the world and have nothing compared to what we've got around here. That's up f***ing me with your Bibles to uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 27. Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi gave a great banquet for him in his house, and there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others sitting at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered, to those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners, to repentance. Lord, as we uh, share this time together, I pray that your Holy Spirit would continue to move. Lord, where there are things just from me, Lord, let those things fall to the ground. But Lord, where there are things from you, let them be like good seed and find good ground and grow, not just for those folks here but have an impact here but around the UK and around the world. We know your word can transform our lives and we want to see that happen this morning. Help us in Jesus' name. Amen. I uh I am an evangelist really in lots of ways. I want to see people meet Jesus. I want to see people follow Jesus. It's it's my heartbeat. I want to go to the places where Jesus is not known very well and help help introduce people to Jesus. That's that's been my life really. But I guess over the time I've realized that it isn't just a matter of winning arguments. It isn't just a matter of sorting out programs. Something spiritual, something mystical, something supernatural has to happen, both in the lives of those I'm sharing with, but also even in my own life. I can only share the good news that I have. I can only point people to the Jesus I know. Uh, there were four kind of conversion experiences that I see in this story that are so important. They're conversion experiences that uh, you cannot manipulate, you cannot make for other people, you cannot uh, generate yourself. There's something that God does in people's hearts and lives. And I just really want to point them out and share something of this text, try and apply it to some of my own experiences, but also where I'm wrestling with some of these conversions. Uh, i 'm using conversion in a uh, not just a how do we get people to become a Christian conversion. It, it is broader than that it is the kind of change that Jesus does in different kinds of ways in our lives and so I am using conversion in a broader a broader sense. The first conversion Levi has in this story is a tax collector he 's sitting there he 's making money out of other people he 's being used by the Roman Empire to exploit his fellow citizens, fellow Jewish people, the first conversion is to Jesus himself. Jesus says, come and follow me. Levi, and in Luke's gospel, we have it very clearly saying that he left everything to follow. He left everything to follow this person. Uh, And I tell you what, that is a huge challenge for me personally have I met Jesus to such a degree that I am willing to make him center of my life and that everything else can orbit around, that everything else is secondary to Jesus and meeting this person in my life. Uh, You know, uh, when we went to Bangkok, one of the challenges for us very quickly was the language barriers. And it wasn't just... The the words, it was actually the culture and the worldviews and the understandings. Uh, Thai is a difficult language. I mean, it's 44 consonants, 32 vowels, five tones. So, ma, 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 mean uh, five different things. Some means come here, some means a horse, some means your mother. I mean, you don't want to get these kind of things mixed up by a different kind of uh, (laughs) tone. And so John 3.16, for example, in perfect Thai, is incredibly difficult to say. (laughs) But assuming you can say it in Thai, what it means to the person in our neighborhood uh, is not what we mean. So, for example, God, the best Thai word for God is prajau. Prajau. If, If someone heard it on the street in Thailand, they would actually think you're talking about the king of Thailand. Uh, that's because it's most commonly used, but it is the best word in Thai language for the highest kind of uh, highest deity. Of course, our word God is not a Hebrew word or an English word or a um, common English word, but actually was the highest pantheon of gods in the German uh, language. that G O D, that that was the highest. So, um, so that's what missionaries did in the early days. But if you just hear, heard that word Prajapati, you would think about a king. Love well, love is an attachment, a desire, and in the Buddhist and a mystic kind of worldview, it's desire that causes suffering, and so that's why you see a great emphasis on meditation that you would try and get rid of desire. So you've got a king causing suffering. God so loved the world. Well, the world in the Buddhist world is an illusion. God so loved the world. This king causes suffering in an illusionary world and then murders his son. And then, of course, uh, if you believe in reincarnation, as Buddhists, my neighbors would, going round and round the, the karmic cycle, endless births and rebirths, eternal life is not good news. So after about five years, Ange and I thought, oh, oh my goodness, what we're saying. Because communication isn't what's said; it's what's understood, isn't it? What we're saying, people are not—they're thinking something totally different to what we mean. How on earth are we going to introduce Jesus to these folks? We can win arguments, all we like, but what actually, what, what we mean and what Jesus means is totally different. So this is what where we got to on this, and actually, I think it is flowing into lots of folks who don't have traditional Christian Christendom worldviews. If we can just, you know, I mean, you see the debates, don't you? If we just get the right arguments. I don't think that works for most people. This is where we got to. We encourage people to say Jesus is not far away from any one of us. Ask God to make himself real to you. And actually, I remember Jim, one of our neighbors, he got beaten up really badly. Uh, You imagine organized crime, kind of run slum communities, and ours was no different. And uh, and and Jim and his wife were really beaten up badly. Baseball bats and um, crazy stuff. And Jim had his right arm broken. Jim's a, a really good guy. He has one unfortunate disability. He uh, supports Liverpool. <laughs> they made them mad, mad. Liverpool's football is huge in Thailand. I mean, when D- David Beckham and Manchester United came to to Bangkok, they literally had idols for David Beckham in the temples. I mean, it, it was it was kind of crazy. And so Jim would come over regularly, but this day he was in just such a state. Jim, what's happened? I've got my arm broken, and my wife's pregnant, she's in trouble, and I'm not sure if people are going to come back. And he was just in an absolute state, absolute agony. And and his right arm was important because he was a motorbike taxi driver, so he needed it for the accelerator. So Jim... uh, you know, we just encouraged for Suat and the pastor was there as well, and I he, he just asked God to make Himself real. He does care about people like you. He is suffering with you in this, and uh, he kind of, you know, stormed up. We didn't know what would happen, but that night he said, he prayed, God, if You're real, make Yourself real to me. That night in a dream, Jesus came to him in the dream, grabbed his right arm, healed his right arm. In the dream, and when he woke up, there was no pain in his arm and he could work. Jim was suddenly open to talk about Jesus for some reason. <laughs> but actually, you've got to understand in our context, supernatural things actually happen all the time. But I do think experiences matter. If we can help our neighbors and friends or people we love experience Jesus somehow, I think we're well underway. There is the discipleship piece, and for For Jim, he did what we call the tough journey, was looking at some of the basic commands of Jesus and helping to obey all that Jesus commands. Repent, believe, receive the Holy Spirit, be baptized and live it, have communion, love practically, give generously, disciple other people. And we did one of those at a time, pray. One of those. But the prayer one was my favorite one, actually, and we did it with a whole group of people from Buddhist backgrounds, teaching them to be still and quiet. In Buddhist meditation, you try to empty yourself. But in Christian meditation, we try and be filled by the Holy Spirit. We concentrate on the loving gaze of Jesus. We did a little bit of that last night, didn't we? Uh, experiencing the loving gaze of Jesus. When people experience Jesus, it doesn't matter about the arguments anymore. We meet Jesus. We shine Jesus. I don't think we need to fight. My, where we are living now? It's an incredible challenge. I mean, Sikh and, and Hindu and Buddhist and, and Muslim folks crowd in around us and if I just try and fight everyone with my de- ideology I, 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 you know, we all do have some good discussions but I, I don't think people really meet Jesus uh, there is a change of attitude that needs to come as well I think that's the third bit there's experiences, knowledge, attitudes for lots of Christians uh, you know, I just get them to name them. Other, my friends as Christians so that's kind of my job done but actually I think it is more complicated than that um, most of our folks who would come along to our church wouldn't describe themselves as Christians. They would say Jesus is centre of their life, but being a Buddhist was so kind of wrapped up in in who they were culturally. Um, and, and we said, well, we don't care what you call yourself, so long as Jesus is Lord and Saviour. And so I, I was at a, a meeting um, just a, a few months ago. Uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury called lots of faith leaders in our neighbourhood together, and I are sitting around the table. And the question was to share, uh, how does your faith inspire what you do? And Buddhist folk, and Muslim folk, uh, there were some other kind of Christian folk there, and they were the... (laughs) I mean, some folk know how to do this, others kind of, you know, we're all on the same path, and all on the same mountain, all that kind of stuff. Um, Most people don't, other faiths don't believe that, and think it's a bit insulting, actually. (laughs) Well, Islam is not the same as Christianity. It's not the same. They are competing claims of who Jesus is. Now, I'm not saying we should go and fight people, (laughs) but I think we do need to share clearly why we have hope in Jesus Christ and the resurrection from the dead. Interesting, some of the other Christians around the table, they were lovely, and they just didn't want to offend people, and they were very gentle, but they said, you know, what inspires me is Spirituality. I'm not sure, no one knew what they were talking about. I must be I was the last person as it went around, so I kind of felt, it's always good to get the last word sometimes in these things, isn't it? But um, what I said is, what inspires me is that Jesus rose from the dead. He overcame death, he overcame suffering, and he's ushering in a world that can be different. I can work for change and hope in my neighborhood because Jesus rose from the dead. And I can attach myself to his resurrection. I can join, I can follow, I can participate with that person. And everyone said, Amen. I didn't quite, (laughs) but people could get it. Wow, that's an exciting vision of the world. And I think sometimes those types of discussions are much better than how can we just kind of beat someone else's argument. Can we help people encounter Jesus, follow Jesus, so when they do it, they have this response that Levi had, leaving everything to follow him. Conversion to Jesus is central and uh, in some sense, you, know, uh, you know, just the most crucial thing in our life. Are we continually putting Jesus center of our lives? Is our best time, energy, thought, creativity connected with Jesus? Not just Jesus' work. Jesus himself. Next conversion is uh, is the conversion to the margins. Now, Levi was already a marginalized person, a traitor, all that. Um, but as he follows Jesus, his house gets opened up. And he has this table fellowship with all kinds of crazy folk there. Now, the word sinner, well, often we think the word sinner... We're thinking naughty people or whatever. And often, you kind of hear those testimonies, aren't you? It's kind of my life was this. and so dramatically bad things happened. And then I came to Jesus and my life got boring. Um, Some of those things are kind of, you know, it shouldn't be like that, should it? And actually, the word sinner in this context is about being unclean, not pure. And you see the Pharisees kind of taking this up why are you eating with these kinds of people, these unclean people, these sinners, these tax collectors, these traitors? Why are you eating with those people? Remember, table fellowship, we we kind of think, oh, he's just having a meal with someone. No, table fellowship and actually um, the complexities of, of this being told originally in Aramaic and then written into Greek and then into English is we can miss the nuances here. Because what this text is actually saying is Jesus is the host of this banquet. He's reclining. And uh, actually that means he is the host. So he's hosting this thing actually. Levi's opening it all up, giving his own home to Jesus. But Jesus is now in charge. And he's inviting the crazies in. Now the story before is a little bit crazy. (laughs) In the last house Jesus has been in. Does anyone know what what that house, that, that story is? It's the guys that break the roof down to to get the paralytic guy in so Jesus can heal him. So that's the last house Jesus was in. Uh, The roof collapsed. (laughs) So this is the next house, and Levi is opening it up. Now, this is the conversion to the margins, the conversion to the poor. All of us will have different stories in this, but I... Uh, I talked yesterday about the kind of miracles that can happen, that Jesus does touch people's lives as we stand with those on the edge, but we also change too. What I didn't talk about, and I do want to raise this as as a genuine issue for me personally, is if Jesus is Lord and Saviour and Centre of our lives, and Jesus goes to the margins and the edges and invites us to come and follow him, it does have implications for those we love doesn't it? This is not just an individual thing. This includes our families and our children and our mums and our dads, all <laughs> affected by us following Jesus in this way. And this is not an easy thing to grasp. Um, my daughter was five years old when, uh, when we went to Klongtoi. And, uh, and it has, was a traumatic time for us. I don't want to step back from that. But I think part of trusting Jesus with our kids is that they do need to find their own faith, but how we live is far more than the kind of decisions we make about our faith than it does if we try to protect our kids from the difficulties of life. Now, my daughter will tell her own story in time, um, and she has actually had something published, uh, so I will read this. This was uh, a bit of a surprise when it came. She was interviewed for this and has written... Um, in her, this is Take Five magazine in Australia. don't know if you have equivalents here. It's kind of a tabloid magazine, you know, you buy it at the, at the supermarket. Uh, <laughs> and they kind of put some, uh <laughs> they, they did take some liberties, my daughter tells me. Um, the title is Slumming It I Grew Up Surrounded by Rats, Pythons, Gangsters, and Prostitutes. Amy Barker, 17, from Blackburn North, Victoria, in Melbourne. Um, So some of it is kind of, you know, taken, whatever. But this is what she said um, about her experiences. There was a C.D. to life in the slums. For starters, we rented our own home from a local gangster. Then, when I was 12, Auntie Blah did a talk at our house church. My family were beggars, she said. I worked in the sex trade to save them. I couldn't believe it. Auntie Blah in the sex trade. My heart sank as she spoke about being trafficked to Singapore, kept in a cage, and raped repeatedly. I was in shock when she took me home afterwards. Families that are very poor sometimes believe there's no other choice but prostitution for their daughters, mum told me later. As if that wasn't bad enough, a year later, five of my closest friends in the slums, girls I'd grown up with, were sent away to work in brothels. One day, they were there, the next gone. It didn't seem fair. Then I started at a high school for foreigners where only Thai elite sent their kids. Going to the homes of my new friends, I was surrounded by wealth, the wealth that they had. Some of them lived in mansions. I'd often go to lavish parties at the homes and then get Dad to pick me up on his scooter later. How come you think you've got an embarrassing dad... Uh, How come they've got so much and my friends in the slums have nothing, I asked Dad. If you're born poor here, it's very hard to escape the slum, Dad told me. Last year I moved back to Melbourne to finish high school. I miss the slum sometimes, but I don't really talk about it to my friends. I mean, how could you begin to explain that the girls I played with when I was little now work in brothels. I saw enormous poverty and immense wealth, and I can honestly say riches, The riches some of my friends had didn't make them any happier than my friends from the slum. Money doesn't buy happiness. Family, friends, being part of a community are what makes people happy. Living in that slum taught me that. I'm hoping one day I'll be able to do my bit to help the poor in Kwong Toi. It might not suit everyone, but I feel lucky to have been brought up in a rat-infested Thai slum. How do we include people in our family lives? How do people become like family to us, people like Blah? We loved Blah, she she was like an auntie to us and yet she had this traumatic background that affected us. But I feel pretty privileged to see what Blah has done. She started Clontoy Handicrafts with Ange, they did over £200,000 worth of sales last year. She helped all kinds of women come out of prostitution like she had and uh, had met Jesus all the way. And and I tell you what, <laughs> to help your children experience those kinds of things is far better education than trying to protect them from it. Now, I'm not saying my daughter, she's old enough to make her own decisions now. And you hold your breath, don't you? You hold your breath. And uh, and you pray like mad. Uh, but, but I feel like... Um, Yeah, in terms of following Jesus, she's had a good experience of that. One of the challenges for us in uh, Winston Green now is how do we help include people into our lives and our family? There are a number of churches in our community. Uh, They're terrific churches, a lot of African Caribbean churches. Um, There are lots of, uh, I say, lots of, um, uh, what's the Sikh temples, what are they called? Gudwaras, Gudwaras. lots of Gudwaras, huge ones, they're, they're by far the biggest kind of... Re- uh, so, so how are we going to gather people for discipleship, community, include people in our lives? I'd really appreciate your prayers, not this Thursday, but the 28th, we're having what we call a peace meal on a Thursday night, including all the people from has been connected with the school at Oasis. Um, we've kind of got connections in the neighborhood, other people that we know, Inviting to share a meal together that has a kind of liturgy with it. So you you pray, everyone prays, everyone gets to participate. Uh, I think that's part of the trick of this. Um, getting, Including, almost assuming faith, assuming that Jesus isn't far away from anybody and including them in. So we've kind of got, yeah, a big day. Uh, It's Thursday week, Does it sound about right? Um, And I'd appreciate your prayers for that. I guess the challenge for all of us is how diverse is our family? How diverse is our table fellowship? Uh, Shane Claiborne, a friend of mine, once did a survey of strong followers of Jesus and he found out that 80% of those strong followers of Jesus believed Jesus spent time with the poor. But then when he asked them, do you spend time with the poor? Only 2% said yes. I think that gap between what we believe about Jesus And following Jesus is one of the great scandals of our time. Not just doing programs for people, not just running things for people, but including people into our families, into the table fellowship. That, I think, is a huge challenge for all of us. The third conversion is one of community building, that we really find out very quickly we cannot do this by ourselves. And even Jesus is there. He's got um, Pharisees and Sadducees trying to have a go at him. But he's got these disciples who are kind of sticking up for him. And, and, and then Jesus kind of overhears the conversation and speaks into it, the priorities of the kingdom of God for the poor. Um, but we, we very quickly realise this is not a solo sport. <laughs> this is, requires teams and diverse people to see change happen. I... Um, one of my heroes in all this, in community organizing, um, is John Perkins. Is that name familiar here? He's an African-American, civil rights leader, uh, brilliant man, in his 80s now. and We had the privilege, uh, I helped run a thing called International Society for Urban Mission. We run summer. we have a journal, and, uh, and we got John Perkins to speak to us. And he was quite incredible, actually, the way he, uh, the way he kind of uh, speaks and, and thinks. He argues, and uh, a kind of typology of leaders that are needed to see change happen in communities, Um, he argues that because of wealth being sucked dry from communities, we do need people to reverse that and to relocate into some of those despairing neighbourhoods. We need relocators. Then he then asks, Actually, but we also need people to stay. We need remainers—people who actually could decide not to live in this community. I mean, Ange and I—we're relocators. We moved intentionally moved into a slum community that was not our own. We've intentionally moved into Winston Green, the, the community you saw there. Um, but actually, some of the, the most important people in our neighbourhood—not us—it's folks who could move out if they wanted to, but decide to stay for the sake of the gospel for the sake of transformation, for the sake of change. Um, yesterday I showed a video clip um, that included Poo, one of our neighbours, and, uh, and she got a, a cooking school together um, with Ange, and uh, it was amazing. It became the number one thing to do on TripAdvisor uh, uh, in Bangkok. Number two was the Grand Palace, and then she got a book that l- launched, Cooking with Poo, and, uh, and they did really well. It won Frankfurt Book Fair Award for the oddest book title of the year, and uh, and, uh yeah, it was, it was a phenomenon. And actually, when my book was launched, Slum Life Rising, was my PhD work, you kind of need all the help you can get, you know, so I had P- Pooh Cabalogue. But the first question from the press was, Pooh, you're so successful at what you do, why do you stay in Klontoi? You've got children, you've got family, you don't need to live there, why do you stay? He said, well, actually, I'm not as wealthy as you might think because we, uh, you know... We give so much of a, a way back to help other people start small businesses in the community. We've got a big staff of training and equipping people. We helped get a coffee shop together, which actually you, you guys from and help get started, help, help seed it as well. Um, and so I'm not as wealthy as you think. But, you know, I used to have to work from 5 in the morning to 9 at night uh, just selling food. And if I missed a day... Uh, my family wouldn't eat the next day. So we'd never have holidays. We'd never have days off. Now I can have holidays. Now I can have days off. This is a gift from God. And I want other people to have the same opportunities that I have had. And I think someone like Pooh remaining as part of toi was far more important than us being kind of catalysts um, in the long term. But then there are the returners the folks who actually need to leave the community. Sometimes it's because of drug use, sometimes it's just because their lives are so chaotic. They've got to leave the community, but they then return with more skills, more confidence, more networks, and can come back. Now, it, John Perkins himself was one of those people. He, uh, he was born in Mississippi in the, in the South when all that racial violence was happening. His brother was shot dead. His mother died um, soon after he was born. And, and, and she talked about it. She literally died while she was um, feeding him. Um, it's incredible poverty. And so the family sent him to Los Angeles, um, to some other extended family. And by the time he was in his 20s, actually, he'd become quite a successful business person. He was married with children. And then he had a sense of call to go back to Mississippi in the 1960s i don't think you've seen like mississippi burning and all that kind of stuff he was in the middle of all that he'd often be beaten by police and tortured but he felt called to go back now i tell you what that that is so prophetic isn't it to go back to return to where you've come from i mean that is incredible And i think and i think about what eden is doing around the country we need more relocators don't we um, we do need to support them in unique kind of ways. There are needs that families relocating into poor communities need, the kind of support they have. Um, one of the things I'm working on is this master's program for urban mission and trying to help particularly relocators to be thinking about what they're doing, engaging with the best practices around the world so they can feed that back into the life of the community. But remainers and returners, not, there's actually a huge gap, isn't there? how to best support those kind of folk. We've been talking with Sam and others. Could we identify high-potential emerging leaders from, from the states and other places um, and hothouse them together, incubate them together, get them to know each other, work with them to build confidence and networks uh, over a year? And so we're trying to work out a program that will help support that as well. Because I actually think the change will come from, from there rather than the mainstream churches, actually. And what can we do to help nurture and support those local grassroots leaders? And and, and I would say to each of us, don't don't just think of the person who can relocate. Who is the person who could build up this community? Who could remain? Who could return? Um, One of the other things we're looking at, and I really appreciate your prayers, um, one of the things that happened when we went to Winston Green the first time over a year ago Uh, The local diocese, the Birmingham Diocese, look, we have this old church building. It fits a 1,000 people. No one uses it. Would you like it? Uh, There's a seven-bedroom manse. It's huge. Um, It's kind of being rented out at the moment, but they're a month by month. Would you like it? And uh, we didn't like the church building because it was so huge. I didn't know what we were doing with it. But we quite fancied the manse. (laughs) Uh, But we have been negotiating, negotiating, and negotiating. And on Thursday, finally, the uh, Archdeacon uh, gave notice to the folks in there, and we move in. say so we move in. Um, we can get access to the building on the 23rd of July. We're still hopefully signing contracts this week, but we are praying for the right people to come. And a bit like a seedbed idea, that people come and learn and grow with us, but then can go and start new Eden teams and others all around the country. That's really what we'd like to, to see happen with that vicarage. So please pray for us with that. But I'd say for all of us, who are those leaders we can invest in? Sometimes it does mean sending them away. I mean, I don't know how many Eden teams we have at the moment. Do we, roughly? 35. Could you pray? Who is it that I could come and join my team? Not just for my team, but we could help start another team out of them. If you could go from 35 to 70 teams, just on multiplication, now that takes a kingdom mindset, not just my work and my kingdom, but, but helps support other teams. And that's where real change happens. Sometimes that will be relocated, some returners. Um, but I, think, I wonder if that could be a challenge for us. And then the last, the last conversion is actually pulling all this together, is that the kingdom of God is not just about individuals. It is about God's will being done in particular places. So the conversion to our place, to our patch. God's real being done on earth as it is in heaven. And of course, Levi has been a traitor to his place. And so he has to give that up. He has to open his own home up. And it becomes a different, a different place because of it. Um, and, I, and I think for us, you know, in Contoi, the imagination was, what would happen? if the kingdom of God that's been ushered in by the resurrection of Jesus, what if that fully came in Klontoi? What would it look like? What would it smell like? What would it feel like? What would it look like? It wouldn't just be everybody going to church. It would be people living healthy lives. People having joy. People having hope. People connecting really well and supporting each other. I mean, and I think that is one of the the big questions. What will God's kingdom coming look like in our neighborhood? Are we so committed to this particular place? Now, the, the theology of place, the spirituality of place is really important. And you do have some amazing places here in the UK that have such history. I, I got to the Holy Island of Iona. Have you, have you been there? I mean, it's where the Celtic missionaries in the 6th century went, when uh, the Dark Ages, you know, Europe had, had been lost. And from that little island, Celtic missionaries went all around Europe and re-evangelized Europe. It's an amazing story. It's part of the history of these islands. And I remember praying on the holy island of Iona saying, Lord, do it again. Then I went to John Wesley's prayer room. And I remember what was happening with the Industrial Revolution and how Wesley had a vision for what could happen among working class people, how they were excluded from churches. The reason he preached in fields wasn't just because they were bigger, it was because the poor were being excluded from churches. And so he went to the fields and he mobilized leaders. And he saw a revolution happen in, on these aisles. And I sat and I prayed where Wesley prayed. And I said to the Lord, do it again. And then I went to the holiest place of all, Old Trafford, And I saw Man United win the semi-final of the Champions League. He said, Lord, do it again. But that one hasn't happened yet. (laughs) Quite seriously, God is at work in our neighbourhoods. And they do have histories. They do have places that we can join in with. We're not just letting God out of our pockets. We're joining in with what God is doing. Uh, And I would love it if you would think not just about individuals, but the place. I mean you can actually tell the Gospel story in a triangle about God people and the earth, and how in in the original story it was good, the relationships were good, but then there was a corruption, there was a breakdown of relationship between god people and and the garden, and they're expelled then of course, the people of God emerged, the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, and that very much smaller triangle really of what god wants to do in the whole world but the redemption story starts there between people god and a particular place particular land of course jesus comes to usher in that god people and the whole earth will be renewed it's begun in the resurrection and it will be completed and i think where we invest ourselves will we invest ourselves in our places knowing that when we love people and we love the places God's called us to be, that's where the kingdom, the kingdom of God works. We've got a conference coming up, and again, Sam and Paul and others have been helping us pull together, called The New Parish. And if you were not going to read one of Andy's books or one of the free books or one of my books, um, I would really encourage you to read the book The New Parish. And what does mission look like from a neighbourhood-based point of view? Um, Paul Sparks is one of the authors and we have him coming out in October and we really we would love it if Eden Folk would come and help m- own that kind of gathering um, there was the Inhabit conference last year they had about 200 people we're hoping to get that 250 this time um, all kinds of neighbourhoods wanting needing to be transformed and we would love your voice into that it will be in Birmingham the 2nd and 3rd of October Conversions I'm not sure where you're at. Levi's a beautiful picture of someone who goes with these conversions. Where are you at? Do you need to meet Jesus again? That it be Jesus-centered rather than just own work-centered. Are you needing fresh conversion with the poor, not as an abstract program target, but as real people? Are you needing to build community, helping other people do the work of the kingdom and not just ourselves? Are you called to a particular place and put some roots down there that change can happen, no matter what the cost, no matter what the time? I'll leave you with that. I, I thank you so much for having us, Angela. I just loved it here. Could you stand there and could I pray with you? Lord, I pray for each person here that they would meet Jesus afresh. Their relationships with those on the edges and the margins would go deeper. That the communities they're part of would not be one of overwhelming conflict and strife but of peace and joy. And that there'd be foretaste of the kingdom of God coming. And Lord, the places that are represented here. Lord, let them be like lights for the nation that the change happens from the edge and from the margins and from these very neighbourhoods that are being represented in this room. And Lord, we play for more. Could we double the number of teams within five years? Could we see 70 neighbourhoods transformed out of the seed that's been here? Lord, I, I thank you for each person here and I ask a blessing on each one in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, friends. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to check out message.org.uk to find out how you can support or even get involved with one of our teams.